good father. Mm-hmm. And we're just so glad to have welcomed you in this morning. Mm-hmm. And Father, I know that you have more you want to say, more things you'd like to do, more things you'd like to release, more things you'd like to break. So Father, as Gordy shares what you've put on his heart, and as we hear this story, this very familiar story about Joseph, God, I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you, Holy Spirit, are saying and are wanting to do in our hearts. And I just bless Gordy now to deliver what you've given him. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kim. Well, if you're just joining us today, we've been journeying through the book of Genesis and... Uh, kind of divided it into two parts but the word the word genesis means beginnings and it's it's really the beginnings of the story uh not just the bible story but but our story and how we've been underlining how important it is to uh to get in on the beginning of the story in order for the rest of the story to make sense and so there's this kind of climatic finish to genesis that happens through the story of joseph and so for the next three weeks, we're going to go through this. Uh, I don't know of a, any other story in the Bible that so consistently just grabs my heart and wrenches me inside out uh, every time I read it. I, I never get tired of it. I, uh, and in the last few years, maybe it's because I'm over 50, uh, I cry every time. Uh, there's just It's just so so amazing and i think it's not just because it's it's a moving story but i i think there are there are themes about it that just touch our hearts all of us uh, i preached it in lower post the last time we were there we we took the whole week and talked about how first nations were like joseph god had given them a dream and there's a unique genetic dna they have that's a gift to the rest of us and like joseph they've been rejected by their brothers and but god's going to use that very rejection to to fulfill their dream and it was so powerful uh, so I've just found so many contexts for this story and how many have ever uh, felt that you were the victim of favoritism raise your hand you know your teacher liked your classmate more than you or your mom and dad loved your brother or sister more than you I we had my parents um, 60th 60th wedding anniversary uh, last year and my brother and sister and I had this interesting conversation we've never had it before we all came to the conclusion that each other were mom and dad's favorite and we were arguing about it no 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 you weren't <laughs> and um, so I found that interesting and then my my I remember around that time my son and daughter having a conversation they were convinced that each other were that were mom and dad's favorite <laughs> Christian and Dee thought the other one was the favorite and then I remember my grandma's funeral a few years ago where different people were getting up and talking about uh, grandma my grandma on my dad's side and and each of us it was a bit of a different one we all thought she was her favorite so we were all getting up I, you know 
favorite son, favorite daughter-in-law, favorite grandchild. <laughs> you know, there was that kind of conversation. And I think there's, there's something about being the favorite that we all need. I think that God actually wired us for that, to be the favored one. And so when we feel we're not, it's painful and hurtful. I remember Elena crawled on my lap a few weeks ago and she said, I'm not important. So she and I went into this argument. And I said, of course you're important. She says, no, I'm not. I said, yes, you are. And I, I basically convinced her she was important because I thought she was important. And you see, there is something about that, that about who thinks you're important, that touches on a deep core in all of us. And, and I, I think somebody probably somewhere had had a conversation with her about, you know, this the danger of an overinflated sense of self. And, and of course, often that is the result of not feeling that you are favored, right? There, the, feeling that there isn't that, that core. And we all struggle with this through our lives. And so this, this story about Jacob is, hits at the core of that, that, that nerve in all of us, uh, that sensitive part. And uh, as we've been going through the book of Genesis, this whole thing of favoritism it's, it's there through the whole, whole book, isn't it? It starts with Cain and Abel. It feels like God favors Abel over Cain. And then it says Noah was given favor, and so everybody else drowned. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, as, as looking at it from a human perspective, then you have Abraham. God, God favors Abraham and the nation of Israel. And, and then that favor passes to Isaac, and then... And then there's this wrestle between Jacob and Esau, where Esau is Isaac's favorite, but Esau or Jacob is uh, is Rebecca's favorite. Esau is Isaac's favorite, and it seems like God sides with Rebecca. You know, and 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 what's that about? And that rivalry ends up in a 21-year estrangement that finally gets reconciled. We talked about two weeks ago in the story of. Of rate uh, of, uh, uh, or sorry, last week in the story of, of Jacob and Esau. And then we have, of course, uh, Jacob's preference of his own wife, Rachel, over Leah. And then that rivalry that starts in that family between their kids uh, that comes full blown into our story today the story of Joseph and his brothers. And what's most painful about this is, is it seems like God, when you look at Scripture, is complicit with this favoritism. He sometimes supports it. He favors Jacob over Esau. And in today, he seems to support Jake, Joseph over his brothers. And so there's this tension in Scripture between God's favor and God's justice. If God favors people, how can he be just? And there's this emotional wrestle that we struggle with. I once heard a preacher say, God has favorites, and for the, those of you that have a problem with that, maybe it's because you're not one of them. You know, I laughed at the time, but later I realized how difficult that would be for so many who already believe they're not the favored one. It just would reinforce that, that lie. And I believe that it's so painful because it strikes at the root of our brokenness and our fallenness as, of human beings. And I think the story of Joseph is so powerful 
because it relates our family conflicts and our, to, to our deepest brokenness. Now, the origins of family conflict, of course, continue, uh, are, are, are right in our story. The story so far is that the social God, or the, the theological word, sorry, I, I missed, I don't know how that happened, but I missed, I meant to say the triune God. The triune God, and what we mean by that is God is social. He's not this uh, solitary being. God is at the very nature, at the very core of the Godhead is social community. And God created humanity in the image of God as a social community. So that image of God is reflected in our being created for community, family if you will, to help our, our, uh, our, our theme today. We were created for family. And so God is on a relentless mission to reconcile humanity and creation from the effects of the fall, which was broken community. We lost the image of God partly by broken community. By We lost community with God. We lost community with each other. We lost community between men and women. We lost community between races. We lost community between classes. That was broken. But then we lost community, as the First Nations remind us, with creation. We lost community with that. So we need reconciliation with God. How many know that part's easy? I can be reconciled to God. That other part's harder, isn't it? Being reconciled with each other. We're still working on that, aren't we? And um, God has chosen to do so in partnership with us who are ourselves broken. So here's the problem. It's, I can easily partner with God. That's no problem. But he says if I'm going to partner with him, I need to partner with him and you to fulfill this mission. That's the hard part. That means we have to be a team. That means we have to be a somewhat undysfunctional family. Somewhat. Like on the road. By this will all men know you're my disciples, by how great your worship band is. By this will all men know you're my disciples, by how wonderful your building is. By your love for one another. So, so that's the challenge of this mission, is we are called to play as a team. I love watching my grandson play soccer. There's just so much theology as I'm watching him. You know, they, you got 20 guys on the team, uh, on the field, and a ref, and two coaches screaming from the side, and a soccer grandpa who's gone ballistic at the last call, <laughs> right? But there's, what, why, there's, so, there's so much that I watch about that that is just so much about the kingdom of God. Because it's not up to one superstar, one solitary person. They have to be a team. And one of the greatest pains of this family of origin stuff has to do with the pain and grief that comes from the issue of favoritism. When it shows up in the church or the kingdom, and when it seems like God's supporting it, the pain can seem unbearable. So let's, first of all, we need to understand God's favor. I want to I I uh, say two things about God's favor that I think are, are really critical here. Number one, God's favor... And you see this with the life of Abraham, the call of Abraham. I will 
bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to other, others. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. God always gives His favor for the sake of others. Who's the most favored person in the universe? God. He, Ephesians uses that language that God is blessed and favored and, and, and he, he expresses that as was expressed through our song, the humble king, he comes and he's the servant of all. That his blessing and favor is for others. And he gives it to us. He appoints, he picks, he chooses, not so that they will use it upon themselves, but for others. And there's always trouble when God's people lose sight of that. When it becomes all about us, it's all about me. Remember that hymn we used to sing? Really, Gordy, it's all about me. Right? There's trouble when we lose sight of that. And, and, and we know that happened with Israel, right? When they lost sight of why God favored them. And Joseph... He had God's dealings when he lost sight of why he'd been favored. And so did Esau. And we talked last week of how he was so broken by that wrestling match with God as God had to get him so he would stop striving and grabbing and, and clutching. And to trust in God. So... We come to the text. There's always trouble when we lose sight of the, the nature of God's story. And this is crucial for us when we come to our story. So we, we pick it up in Genesis 37. This is the account of Jacob's family line. And the previous verse says that Jacob lived in the land where his father. And I want to remind you of the multi-generational, intergenerational nature of this story. That we not only need each other in this generation, but we need the previous generation. There's a humility about re reaching back into the past. And there's a humility about realizing we need that, that wonderful, beautiful mob that just left the, build, left the room to go downstairs. We need them. They're part of our story. And we have this fearful and trembling responsibility to pass on that story to them in a way that they know they're part of it. So it says, this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. I'll explain these. These were concubines of, of Jacob. One was a servant to Leah. You'll remember the older daughter and one was a servant of Rachel, the younger daughter, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. How many know there's trouble already? We have a rat here, or a tattle. Or maybe a responsible young man who's saying, you know what, this isn't acceptable. We don't know. It's interesting the Bible doesn't really explain it, does it? It just says it happened. And I'm glad the Bible doesn't nuance it for us, because I think there's something about leaving it to us to realize that there's brokenness on all sides here. There's brokenness with Jake, Joseph, and there's brokenness with his brothers. And there's joke, brokenness with his dad. There's still brokenness, even though God has sanctified Jacob in an amazing way. He's still a broken guy, and we're going to see that in this story, I think. Now Israel, remember what does Israel mean? 
wrestler, one who wrestles with God and wrestles with people and, and overcomes. So Israel or Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Whoops! So tattletale, now favoritism, because he'd been born to him in his old age. So let's give Jacob a break. You have to understand that by the time Joseph was born, do you know how old Jacob was? Are you ready for this? 91. All right? Now, I'm not 91, but I'm old enough to know that when my grandkids arrived, I'd slowed down enough in life to notice them. Some family dysfunction coming out there. And, and someone once said about grandparents that grandparents see children in a way that parents cannot. And it's because parents are up to their eyeballs trying to survive, right? They love their kids. I'm not saying parents don't love their kids, but it's grandparents are able to step back and, you know, when it's time to change the diaper, give them back to mom, you know, that kind of thing. But there, there's a... There's a, there's a sense of being able to step back and see. And I think even though Joseph was Jacob's son, just with the extended family, the polygamy, the child care that was around, he was able to just notice. And of course, Joseph was also the first son of Rachel, Rachel who was his favorite wife, the one he preferred to marry in the first place. So I'm sure, Scripture doesn't say it there, but I'm sure that was a factor. And, and Joseph, Jacob was just absolutely crazy about Joseph. And this did not go well with the other guys. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to them. A quick review on this. You remember that Jacob, uh, Abraham was called out of Ur of the Chaldees, went with his father actually to Haran, and here, in Genesis 12, God called Abraham to leave his father's house and go down and live in Canaan. And then when Isaac came along, they wanted to get a, a wife for Isaac, so Abraham's servant went back to this area, found Rebekah, brought her home. Then when Rebekah had uh, Jacob and Esau in this area, and they'd had that big Barney, that fight, Jacob ran for his life, and headed back here again, found Rachel and Leah. And then he came back and met Esau somewhere in this area. By the way, the modern areas are all... I like this map, because this is where the modern-day Jordan is, Syria. Syria, see that? This is the West Bank here, Palestine. So it's all... In fact, a lot of these towns are still actually there. Shechem is still a town today in the, in the West Bank. Um, so... Our story picks up where Jacob comes back, has this reconciliation with Esau, which Dee and I talked about last week, or the week before. I'm, I'm, and then Jacob settles in this area, and, and, and this is where the story picks up. And the, this kind of gives us a little idea of the family. So this gives the, his oldest daughter, Leah, or his oldest wife, Leah, rather, gives birth to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Then there's, she stops having kids, so she gives Jacob her, her maidservant because there was a lot of notoriety in having babies, and so Dan and Naphtali, these are all the tribes of Israel, of course. 
And then Rachel, frustrated she can't have kids, gives Jacob her maidservant, Zilpah. She has Gad and Asher. And then Leah has two more children, thanks to the pomegranates, was it, or mandrakes, or some, some kind of special aphrodisiac fruit that she ate, we think, she thinks. And then finally it says Rachel had children, Joseph and Benjamin, when Jacob was 91. So here's the story. I found this beautiful website that gives me all these PowerPoint slides without needing any copyright or acknowledgement. And, and if any of you are teaching and you'd like to have access to these, they're wonderful. This, this is Jacob giving Jacob this, Joseph the, the coat of many colors. One of the reasons why many scholars believe this was so painful for the other sons is that many scholars believe that by giving Joseph this garment, that he was actually conferring on Joseph the, the rights of the firstborn. And so this is another thing to remember about favor. There was, there was special favor on firstborn children, but again, it was for others. They called it the double portion. And so when a, when a patriarch died, all of the family would receive an inheritance, all the sons would receive an inheritance. But the firstborn would always receive twice as much. And everybody said, well, that's not fair. Well, actually, it was more responsibility. There was more favor because if, if um, someone became indebted in the family or someone was orphaned or someone became widowed, that firstborn was then responsible for the, for the marginalized ones in the family. So favor, again, came with responsibility. But often, people lost sight of that and it became... Uh, all about me again. And so, many scholars believe that God was, uh, God was inspiring Jacob to make Joseph the firstborn heir. Well, of course, the brothers were ballistic about that. They didn't want that. Um, so, so it's all, we already have a tattletale. In, e in East Van, the word would be a rat. Then we have the coat, so there's trouble in paradise. You know, it's like Christmas time. You know, when, when parents, if you celebrate this way, and I'm not assuming everybody does, but when you have presents under the Christmas tree, you're not only giving a present to your son or your daughter or your grandchild, but you're thinking, is this going to make somebody else unhappy? You know, have they all got something? Well, Jacob obviously didn't, wasn't thinking about that. And he just kind of, bam, you know gives jo Joseph this coat, and everybody else is, is just ballistic. They're, they're angry about it. So on top of that, Joseph has this dream. So it seems now that God is starting to get complicit in this. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field, when suddenly... My sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Love you. His brothers said to him, how exciting. No. Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more. I mean, Scripture tries really hard to, to bring on the hate factor. They hated him. They hated him. They hated him more. They he hated him with awesomeness, hatred. You know, it's kind of like you get the feeling that the writer's really trying to make a point there. 
And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he said. Then he had another dream, and he's told his brothers, listen, he said, I had another dream. This time, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Well, uh, some, some people think that there was a cosmic dimension to this that was bordering on the blasphemous, that, because Jacob had just instructed all the people to get rid of all the other gods in the house and, and worship Yahweh, the one true God. So, but the 11 stars probably means his brothers. Okay, so it's symbolic. And the sun and moon probably was symbolic to them of his mom and dad. So not only are his brothers going to bow down, but his parents, they were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him <laughs> and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? And Rachel was already dead at this point, so probably it was Leah he was referring to. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So again, here's Jake, Joseph having a sleep. Here's the dream he had. And he's so excited. There's little Benjamin there. See Benjamin? His younger brother. And he's saying, see, this is what I saw you guys doing. Just kind of like that. Then he had another dream. And yep, they were all bowing down. And I'm so excited. And he tells Jacob, and Jacob says, what are you doing, man? I think Jacob was more concerned that Joseph told them than that Joseph had the dream. He says, what are you doing? You're not making it easier for us. I'm sure he was aware of it. But it says Jacob pondered this in his heart. One thing we haven't talked a lot about in this series is dreams. There's a lot in our Genesis series. Have you noticed that? About dreams? I wish I could just do a whole sermon on dreams. Seriously. Maybe a whole series on dreams. Because dreams are an important part of God's plan for our life. They're a huge part of our story. I think that God started the universe with a dream. Then he called a meeting which some of you know I have problems with that. I think this, the, Holy, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit formed a committee and planned out the universe. They said, hey, this is a good idea. What do you think? Right? They kind of, they did it together. And, it, and so God gives Joseph this dream, and at first it seems like an illusion of grandeur, but can I remind you, later we find out that this dream was given why. God gave Joseph the dream for others. It wasn't about him. It wasn't dreams of grandeur. He gave him the dream to save the lives of his brothers and his family. That's what the dream was for. God gives us dreams. He gives us big dreams. And he says, dream big. But as the, the, the corrective for that is it is for others. That's God's heart. We've been working as an oversight team, leadership team, about a, a, a vision to summarize our coming year. And we've been talking about being better and getting more disciples who live in authentic Christian community for the sake of the world, for the sake of others. Whenever a home group is all about itself, it will die. I can guarantee you that. Whenever a church becomes all about itself, it will die. Listen, I've been in this 40 years, my friends. And I've seen it happen over and over and over again. 
Self-absorption, if you want to lose your, any home group that seeks to save itself will lose it. Any church that seeks to save its life will lose it. Any Christian that seeks to save their life will lose their life. It's about others. That is the heart of God. And I know it's hard sometimes because we feel so broken and we're in pain and we go, what do I have to give? But that's the point is we are wounded healers. Wounded healers. And it's actually those points of pain and brokenness that become the access point for God's power. His strength is made perfect through those wounds, through those weaknesses. So, soon after this, oh, let me just say this one more thing about your dream before I move on. Your dream is the unique DNA that God has made you to bless the world. So you, it's who you are, it was God's design, your gift mix, your story, your family of origin that you came from, broken or not. Well, I haven't met any family of origin that's not broken. Your gender, your experience in life, your suffering. Are you a thinker or a feeler? Introvert or extrovert? Right? First child, middle child, last child, only child. Left or right brain, all of those are God's unique way of wiring you to bless others. So you can rest in knowing you're free to be who you are. And the dream is not threatened by that. So soon after this, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. Uh, this is a very, I forget the name of the town, but we often hear this place on the news a lot in, in, in the West Bank still there. Shechem means trouble. <laughs> still is. Verse 13. When they had been gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, your brothers are pasturing the sheep at Shechem. Get ready and I will send you to them. I'm ready to go, Joseph replied. Go and see how your brothers and the flocks are getting along, Joseph, Jacob said. Then come back and bring me a report. So Jacob sent him on his way and Joseph traveled to Shechem from their home in the valley of Hebron. You remember Hebron was where the first what? The first piece of land that the patriarchs owned. They bought that tomb for Sarah's grave, right? So here's the story. So Joseph goes up to Hebron, or from Hebron, up to Bethel, to Shechem. So this is the Dead Sea, and then we're getting close to the Sea of Galilee. This is probably in the area of, of Samaria and modern-day West Bank. In, in Israel today, in the, in, in, the, in the Holy Land area. So he goes to Shechem and he can't find his brothers. And so someone says, hey, I saw them go to a place called Dothan. And, and so he heads up there and finds his brothers there. And so we pick up the story there. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild has, animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Okay, folks, this is serious. This isn't just some little innocent sibling rivalry. This is like life and death now. Police still tell us to this day that the calls that they're most afraid to respond to are domestic violence. It's the violence in the home. Home can be heaven or hell. 
when Reuben, who was the oldest, member, the ch oldest son of, of Leah, heard of their scheme, he came to Joseph's rescue. Uh, let's not kill him, he said. Why should we shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness. Then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Reuben was secretly planning to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. And I'm sorry, this really is violent. It's terrible. They grabbed him, threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And so again, uh, these images tell us they're plotting. They see him coming. They grab him, throw him into the well. So, if you have a dream, can I say, pit happens? <laughs> to borrow from the Buddhists. Pit happens. In other words, let me ask you this. Do you still want God's favor? Do you still want Him to fulfill that dream in your life? You can't get there without this. It's just the way it is. I don't understand fully why. But the good news is you, the pit doesn't negate the dream. In fact, the pit, as horrible as it felt for jo Joseph, was actually accelerating him towards the dream. God didn't cause it. God didn't desire it. But God knows our human fallenness and our brokenness and our sin and God in his foreknowledge, in his wisdom and design, used the pit to get Jacob where he needed him, Joseph to where he needed him to be. And he used the pit to shape Joseph's soul so he could handle the dream when it was time. So the dream would bless him and others and not destroy him. Pit happens. We see this, we often see success in ministry through the eyes of the world and not God's. And we forget that many people through history, like Jeremiah, preached their whole lifetime and never saw one person respond to him. Isaiah, God said, here's the results of your ministry. People will become more rebellious and hard. Oh, thanks, God. What about Jesus? Did he end well? Did he end successfully? His closest followers are running in every direction as he dies naked and alone in agony on a cross. Was he successful? In God's eyes, he was. Pit happens. Then just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. Gilead was, if you remember, on the east side of the Jordan. Beautiful. That's where the balm of Gilead, we, we, we've heard that in poems and songs. Jeremiah talks about the balm. Is there any balm in Gilead? It was, it was like a medicine that they were bringing to Egypt. And these were sons of Ishmael, another son of, of, Isaac, of Abraham. So distant relatives, amazingly. Judah said to his brothers, now remember Judah, he's the fourth 
of Leah's children, right? He says, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brothers agreed. Oh, he's so kind. Such mercy. Excuse my sarcasm. Verse 28, so when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him to them for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him to Egypt. So here they, they show up. The brothers make a deal. They sell Joseph against his screams of protest. I mean, you know, we read the story, we can't imagine the trauma the anguish, the pleading. In fact, later when they were arguing in Egypt, they talk about jo Joseph pleading with them not to do this. Don't kill him. Don't trade him. So he's taken to Egypt, and this is kind of the route that he went from this area through the uh, Arabian Desert today to Egypt, somewhere there. And... Sometime later, Reuben returned to get Joseph out of the cistern. And when he discovered that Joseph was missing, he tore his clothes in grief. When he went back to his brothers and lamented, the boy is gone. What will I do now? So the brothers killed a young goat and dipped Joseph's robe in its blood. So they obviously stripped him of the robe before they took him. They sent him. And they sent this beautiful robe to their father with this message. Look at what we found. Doesn't this robe belong to your son? Their father recognized it immediately. Yes, he says, it is my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph has clearly been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and dressed himself in burlap. He mourned deeply for his son for a long time. His family all tried to comfort him. Now, imagine people come to sit with Jacob and comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. I will go to my grave mourning for my son, he would say, and then he would weep. I thought of this a few weeks ago when I was in the parking lot of Safeway and I heard somebody laughing. And it was so grating on me to hear them laughing. And the reason why... It grated on me is because I was grieving because I just heard the story of um, this beautiful young girl who'd been stabbed in Abbotsford. Came from a Christian family. And I thought of her mom and her dad getting the news that day. And I don't know why, but just for a second, I was, felt like I totally entered into that grief. And I thought, if that was me, I could never laugh again. I could never smile again. I, could, I couldn't do it. And that's how Jacob must have felt. Don't ask me to smile. Don't ask me to laugh. I'll just, I'll just grieve or just grieve, and then he would cry. A father's grief over his son, my son, my son. 
And then Jacob was take, Joseph was taken to Egypt. Meanwhile, the Midianite traders arrived in Egypt where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. And so we see Jacob being looked at like merchant, or Joseph being looked at like merchandise. Ah, pretty good looking young man, looks strong. So think of this image, Joseph's agony, and recall the image of Jacob. I showed you a couple minutes ago, a minute ago. Jacob's anguish, Joseph's anguish. Knowing what we know now, what would you say to them? Well, if you're smart, he wouldn't say anything. Except know what you know and be with them. And in your heart say, the story isn't finished. The cross tells you and I that no matter what heartbreak or grief or tragedy we face, what disappointment, disillusionment, despair, temptation to bitterness and anger, it tells us that the story is not over. If we choose to wait in hope, and so we move into next week's story about the tests of Joseph and and Jacob's long season of grief and mourning. So how do we stay in the story? What kept Joseph? The one sustaining force that keeps us in the heart of the story is what kept him. His dad loved him and he knew it. His dad favored him and he knew it. And his hope was, I'm going to see my father again. I'm going to see my father again. And I don't know where that dream, that dream doesn't make a bit of sense in the circumstances that I'm in right now. But my father loves me. And tribulation works character. And character works hope. And hope does not make ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. My dad loves me. That was the, the bedrock that held him. And secondly, somehow, some way, Joseph refused to hold it against his brothers. He refused to be derailed in bitterness. Somehow. And those two things, disillusionment, lost dreams, giving up on your dreams, casting away your confidence, and bitterness against, this is against God, this is against your brothers and sisters. Those two things I've found over and over and over again in the church derail people from their dreams. Over and over and over. There are other things, but often it's disillusionment, bitterness. Disillusionment, bitterness. Jean Vanier was talking to a Rwandan mother who'd seen dozens and dozens of her children slaughtered and families slaughtered in Rwanda. And she said to Jean Vanier, I don't think I can ever forgive those people. 
for what they did to my family. Jean Vanier, in his wisdom, said to her, so do you want to kill them? And she said, oh, no, no, no. The killing needs to stop. And he said to her, just by saying that you don't want to kill them, you're already on the road to forgiveness. Isn't it beautiful that God takes us where we're at? And he'll work with that. And maybe you're still in the I want to kill them face. He'll even, he'll even work with you there too. He'll work with you there. So the key anchor in staying in the story, my father loves me, God loves me, and if you forgive people their sins, your heavenly father forgives you of your, your sins. There's this one sustaining force that keeps us. Stay in the story. Don't get derailed. You in the pit? Are you in slavery? Labor without reward? What the heck does this tedious task I'm doing have to do with the dream that God gave me? Where are you at in the story? Don't get derailed. Let's pray. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Just, I pray that you would just come and where we've allowed the dream to die, to be derailed by the pit, rejection by our brothers, family dysfunction, church dysfunction. Would you come, Lord? Disillusionment. You know what disillusion means? It means disillusion. Illusion has to do with, with vision. Disillusionment is lost vision, lost dream. And I feel like the Lord is just wanting to just stir that up in some people. You may not have cast it away, but you just kind of let it, given up on it. Lord, would you come, reveal your mercy. We cannot forgive unless we first received your mercy. We pray for a fresh revelation of how much you've forgiven us. And even though that brother or sister may have done something that is extremely wounding and hurtful, Lord, they need, they, need your, they need mercy, yes, but nowhere near the kind of mercy that we need for ourselves. Would you come, Lord, and wash over us? Thank you, Lord.